0: Good morning again. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. uh, We'll actually be looking at the very last bit of chapter 15 all the way through the end of chapter 17. If you need a Bible, there should be a black, hardbound Bible in the pew somewhere around you. Exodus 15, uh, verse 22, is on page 57. Of that Bible, but I just want to read one verse, which is on page 59. We'll read bits of it, this whole text, as we go through. But I just want to read one verse and then pray together. And then we will uh, look at these things together, look at God's word together. Of all the words that we will hear today, of all the words that we hear this week, these are the words that must stick in our mind and in our hearts. These are the words that must guide us. His word truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Exodus chapter 17, verse 7 is the verse I'll read. This is what the Spirit says there. And he, that is Moses, called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to Your Word to hear. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. And so we come to you, and we come to these words, your words, and we seek your help. We pray that you will help us by your Holy Spirit to understand what you say in these chapters, to not only wrap our minds around them, but to be changed by them. We pray you would open our hearts to receive your word as the word of the living God, and that we believe what we hear, and that we will live according to what You have said. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Two weeks ago, um, I took a class with Indianapolis Theological Seminary, and it was a week-long intensive class on Hebrew exegesis. Uh, What that essentially means is it was a class on interpreting the Bible from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Uh, Most of the Old Testament, if you didn't know, was originally written in the Hebrew language. And so, uh, having studied some, this was a helpful course in doing that. But the course was actually held, uh, hosted by a church on the north side, Faith Missionary Church. Uh, basically directly north of here, just inside the loop, uh, near Meridian. And so every morning I would get up and I would open up my map app and I would put in the address. And there would be three different ways that I could go, right? I mean, if you know Indianapolis, you know this. I could go up around the east side on 465, you know, take your life in your hands. And you could go up around the west side of 465 or... You can just go straight up and not be on the highway at all. And so I would look at the app, and the app is wonderful because it doesn't just show you these three routes. It also gives you the estimated time that it would take you on these three routes based on, in part, the traffic. So that if the traffic is slow, the little part of that where it's slow is yellow, and if it's stop and go, it's red. So now, what route do you think that I chose to go every morning. I chose to go wherever there was no yellow and no red. Even if it meant that my phone estimated a couple of minutes longer, I would rather drive without disruption, without frustration, because all the other people are the bad drivers. I, I, I just wanted the smoothest ride possible. I mean, can I get an amen on that? All right, and do you know that I went up uh, a different way, almost just every day was not the same I mean a couple of days it was on the east a couple of days it was on the west once it was straight up, and I would do the same thing coming home but we don't just want that kind of thing in traffic, do we? That's what we want in life we want a life with no yellow roads we want a life with no red roads. In fact, some would believe that if you're a Christian, you should probably pretty much expect a smoother life than you would have without being a Christian. Now, not many might actually say that. Some explicitly do, but most people don't actually say that. The way that we know that that's what's expected is because when health fails, when wealth flees, When death robs us, when tragedy strikes, some of the first questions that are asked are about the goodness and the love and the presence of God. How can He be good if this is happening? How can He actually love me if this is what's going on? Where is He? Now, why do we ask those questions? Because we expect God is there really in part to make things clearer and smoother from here to heaven. That was the expectation of the children of Israel. They've been rescued from slavery. They've crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea. They're headed to a land flowing with milk and honey and probably Leah's doughnuts. And the fact is, is that the journey from Egypt to the promised land is not as smooth as they had expected. So they come to the place where they ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? Well, that's really the question, isn't it? That's the question that we ask as we travel through the wilderness of life. Is is the Lord among us or not when we suffer? Is the Lord among us or not when we face opposition? Is the Lord among us or not? But I believe, friends, if we will hear these chapters well, we will be encouraged by the fact that God is faithful to His people even when they fail. Now, I just want you to know this. Eric and I did not coordinate our language before this service, but did you hear he actually said almost those precise words as part of his testimony? He essentially said God was faithful to him even when he failed. And I think actually this is what these chapters are meant to teach us. God is faithful to his people even when they fail. So, let's think about this. First of all, God is faithful when we suffer. God is faithful when we suffer. Now, this is where we'll spend the majority of time because this is where uh, the most uh, land is given here in these chapters. That's what it's focused on. The Israelites start out from the Red Sea back in chapter 15, and it doesn't take long before the realities of life in the wilderness set in. Um, Where are we going to find food? Where are we going to find water?" But as you'll hear, these folks don't just ask the question, they grumble about it. They're not praying, they're complaining. They lay the blame for all this uncertainty and for the lack of food and water at Moses' feet. And in actuality, in what they do, they don't really blame Moses. The Bible tells us that in laying the blame at Moses' feet, they're really laying the blame at God's feet. God, how dare you? Now, this isn't the first time the people grumble. We actually saw it last week. The people are pinned between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. Chapter 14, verse uh, 11, and this is what they say to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness?' What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And we'll see that kind of complaining, that kind of grumbling, come in a series of three events. It's a pattern. But each time, the grumbling gets a little worse. But God never changes. I hope you'll see that. The first thing they come to is bitter water bitter water, um, chapter 15, verse 22, just listen to what happens. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not, find the, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your God. Healer, they're three days in. They can't find any water, and then they come up on water, and it looks good. And probably, maybe somebody broke out into you know some cheering as finally somebody has seen some water. So they get the water and they scoop it up, uh, and, and they begin to drink it, and they immediately spit it out because and they start warning each other, "Don't touch the water, Mara, Mara, it's bitter." We can't drink this water. The animals can't even drink this water. So they turn to Moses and there's grumbling under their breath. It's like uh, uh, Yosemite Sam type stuff, right? And they're grumbling under their breath until someone speaks up. And what they say, if you just read the text plainly, it says, What shall we drink? Now, there are a couple ways you can ask that question, can't you? Well, what shall we drink then? This water is not good. Where is the good water? We shall find it. But that's not how they asked because the Bible says they grumbled against Moses in saying it. So it's it's actually a question disguised. It's a complaint disguised as a question. What shall we drink? I mean, if you're a manager wherever you work, maybe you've heard questions like that from the people that you lead. If you're a parent, maybe from a child, it really only takes one word, doesn't it? Why? The child is not asking for an explanation. (laughs) Father, (laughs) will you give me the logic by which you decided I ought to clean my room right now? This is not what they're doing, whether they're British or not, all right? So, but that's what's going on here. They're grumbling against Moses. So, what Moses does is he takes it and he turns to the Lord and the Lord responds. Look at how the Lord responds. The Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Now, how does throwing wood into water make it sweet? The answer is, who knows? What we do know is that God is faithful in the midst of their failure. They fail to trust God. He's actually still faithful and provides for them. That's really merciful, isn't it? Do you remember what the word provision means? It means to see ahead, provision. To see ahead and make plans to, to meet a need. And here is this log. Now, if you, when you came into the parking lot this morning, well, maybe you noticed this last week. I was blind to it for a bit. But when you came in, you noticed that we had to take down this big, beautiful tree next to the, next to the uh, playground because it was dead. And I remember coming in uh, the parking lot about a week and a half ago, a week ago Friday, and I came in, and there's, there's the trunk and piles of branches on either side. And some of these branches, you know, are like six inches around. They're not twigs. They're logs. And when you see logs like that, you don't just think, oh, that must have grown very, very quickly. No, it's been there a long time, right? And here, the word is actually for tree, but it can be used for wood, like firewood or anything else. And the idea is that this wood, isn't, this isn't just a sapling that just happened to pop out in the last few days. This tree has been there for decades, growing, so that at this moment, God would meet this need. That's provision. That is the faithfulness of God. And once God provides the water they need, He calls them to obedience. And notice how He words it here in uh, verse 25. There He tested them. And then He calls them to obedience. That's how actually God describes the whole wilderness journey is as a test. As Moses is recounting all of this in Deuteronomy 8, he says, The Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Now, I know it's summer, and we ought not to talk about school during the summer, but what is it that the tests in school are meant to do? They're meant to reveal what you understand. What is it that you know? What is it that you understand about what you have been taught? And God is saying that the struggles and the suffering in the wilderness, the water that's bitter when you show up to it, these variety of things, these are actually going to the hardship and the suffering and the trials in your life and in my life. Actually, the way we respond to them reveal what we actually know of God. It reveals our understanding of God. It reveals whether we will trust God and continue to obey God. I mean, you know, you who are teenagers and are about to go off on this youth camp, I will tell you the easiest place there is to trust God and to obey God is at youth camp. When everybody around you is saying, trust God, obey God, trust God, obey God. You want to feel like you're trusting God and obeying God? Go to a conference where all you're doing is sitting around with other people saying, Hey, obey God. Trust God. Obey God. Here's what's going to happen, teenager. You'll get back. You'll get back on that sports team. You'll get back in that classroom. You'll get back in your neighborhood. And, and when everybody's not around you, you know, cheering, you know, it's not the big pep rally. And things start to go south. Things aren't going the way that you want them to go. Things aren't going as smoothly as you'd like them to. You thought once you had that experience at camp, everything would be different now. No, what's meant to be different is us. And so when you bump up against it, then actually the truth of what's in your heart Will come out. That's what the test will do. It'll bring it out. But God says that's what He's doing. And we'll see if they pass the test in a bit, but look at verse 27 here in chapter 15. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now you could just brush right over that, but this is amazing. They just came out of a place where the water was bitter, right? God has Moses throw in a log. It is sweetened. They can drink it. And then God takes them to a place with 12 springs of water and palm trees. This little verse is like a reminder from God. You can trust me. I will provide Trust me. And the question is, will they? Sadly, the answer is no. We go on to the next scene, which is where they move from bitter water to no food, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That's not the Hebrew word for sin, that's literally just transliterated S I N. So don't Don't make connections that aren't actually there, all right? It's because it's near Sinai. First three letters of Sinai, S-I-N, all right? So between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. This is a few weeks later. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, "'Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt.'" "'When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, "'for you have brought us out into this wilderness "'to kill this whole assembly with hunger. "'Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, "'and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion "'every day that I may test them, "'whether they will walk in my law or not. "'On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, "'it will be twice as much as they gather daily.' "'Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord.' "'Then Moses said to Aaron, "'Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, "'Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling.' "'And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, "'they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, "'the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. "'And the Lord said to Moses, "'I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel.' Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. As you can see, the pattern continues, but here there's no food. Now, when this realization comes on them, you know what they could do? They could remember Elim, right? You remember the twelve springs? Do you remember the palm trees? Do you even remember Mara, where bitter water was made sweet? They could just have a little youth camp right there, couldn't they? Come on, everybody. Let's trust the Lord. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord, and He will hear us, and He will provide. But they don't do that. They grumble, and it goes further because they look back on Egypt with rose-colored glasses. Did you see that, verse 3? This is what they say. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. I mean, Moses, Egypt was like Texas Roadhouse and O'Charlie's all wrapped up into one. It was fantastic, wasn't it? Don't you remember? Yeah, there were some hard days. Sure, they wanted to throw our children into the Nile, but we had meat. This is what the kind of thing that they're saying. But it's not just there. Did you know that on this day, back in 1865, 2,000 soldiers come into Galveston, Texas, to announce to the city and to the whole state of Texas that the Emancipation Proclamation of two years ago sets the slaves free there in Texas, too? And within one generation, there's all these strides that are made. Families that had been separated uh, were reunified. Uh, people are running. Uh, former slaves are running for office. They're lobbying for legislation. It's really amazing. I mean, they, they, they obviously full change does not come in one generation, but all manner of things start moving forward. Now, can you imagine? One of these men coming home to his family after seeing that the crop isn't going to be what he'd hoped it would be and saying, I sure wish we were back on the plantation. I mean, we ate well there. That's unimaginable, isn't it? You can't even, that's not even, that's not sane thinking. And yet here, that's what Israel is doing. And yet in the midst of the grumbling, God is faithful. He promises them meat and bread. And four times over 13 verses, we have this pairing of words, evening and morning, evening and morning. In verses 6 and 7, it happens. In verse 8, it happens. In verse 12, it happens. In verse 13, it happens. It's just like, look, just all of the time I'm going to provide. Morning and evening. But what really struck me is what he says in verse 6, what Moses says in verse 6, and then what God says in verse 12. Look at this. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 12, God himself says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then they'll know? Does that not strike you as odd? Do you remember all that's happened to this point? The plagues on Egypt? Salvation from the plague of the the death of the firstborn? Guiding them to the Red Sea? Splitting the Red Sea? swallowing up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. The bitter water has been made sweet. And then they will know that I am the Lord. Once they see the quail and the manna, friends, God doesn't need to prove himself over and over to us for his sake. God proves himself to us over and over again for our sake because we are slow to believe because we are stubborn because we are failures and again God says in all this there will be a test behold this is verse 4 uh, at the end of it, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. There's going to be a test here, and I'll just tell you right away, Israel fails the test. They fail to trust the Lord. They fail to obey His Word. In verses 16 to 20 of this chapter, which we won't read, but they're told, go out and every day just get enough manna for one day. All right? Don't put it in a Ziploc bag. Don't get out your Tupperware. Don't put it in the freezer to save it. Don't put it in aluminum foil. You just get what you need for this day. And look what what it says in verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. Failure number one. Well, then in verses 23 to 26, they're told about what to do the day before the Sabbath because they're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. So he says, go out and get two. You don't even have to put it in Tupperware. It's not going to spoil because God's giving it to you for the Sabbath. Well, look at verse 27. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Failure number two. The people keep failing. And God keeps being faithful. In fact, at the end of this chapter, God has them put manna in a jar... And when the ark is built, they're going to put it in there and it's going to be kept for all the generations as a testimony of the faithfulness of God. And verse 35 says Israel ate manna for 40 years. Now, they've definitely learned by now, right? I mean, that's good. You got manna every day. They've definitely got it now, right? Lesson learned. Trust the Lord. No. Because we go from no food to no water. Chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Let me reread that. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It's like deja vu all over again, isn't it? Except things get ramped up. No longer are they merely grumbling, they are quarreling. And what that means is that they are angry. They are berating Moses. They are railing at Moses. They are chewing Moses out. He's trying to kill us. We don't deserve this. Give us water now. Now, if you notice, up to this point... The subject of the testing has been God. The object has been the people. God will test the people. But here the grammar changes, doesn't it? It says the people test God. What that means is they're going to hold back on their faith. They're going to hold back on trusting the Lord until they have determined that He has done enough For me to trust him. Now, Lord, if you will get me out of this, I will consider trusting you. But until then, no dice. It's quite a posture, isn't it? After all that God's done, the rescue from Egypt, the Red Sea, the bitter water made sweet, the quail and the manna, after all of this, you'd think that the Israelites would be content to trust. The Lord. You'd think they would just cast their cares on Him because He cares for them, that they would pray in humble faith and just wait for the Lord to answer. But no, they dig in their heels, they take their grumbling to a new level, and they just attack God by attacking Moses. How could they do this? how could they experience the work of God with such power and grace and provision and act as if none of it ever happened? How could they ever ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? Well, it's tempting to keep asking them, isn't it? It's tempting to put them on the witness stand and cross-examine them regarding their lack of trust in the Lord. When in reality, we need to ask ourselves, what, why is it, That knowing the grace of God, knowing the forgiveness of Jesus, knowing His mercy, knowing His Spirit within me, knowing His promise of strength within weakness, knowing the promise of heaven, why isn't that enough for me to trust Him in all of life? Why is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ not enough to convince me that I can trust God? to really believe that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why, Why do I shake my fist at heaven rather than bow my knees in humility? And the answer is, We tend to walk by sight, not by faith. We tend to craft our view of God based on what we can see in our lives, what we can see in our families. What we can see in our workplace, what we can see in the world. And when the vision of God that I craft based on what I see doesn't fit the kind of God I want, you know who goes on the stand to get cross examined? God does. And we thunder away at him, cross-examining him. How could you? How dare you? Where are you? Where is your love? You are not the God I wanted you to be right now. You see, we're no different from these folks. Which is why we ought not shake our head at these folks. But shake our head at ourselves. We see the speck in their eyes quite clearly, don't we? And we miss the log in our own. And at this peak of unbelief, we find the peak of God's faithfulness. Pass on before the people, God says in verse 5, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. It's the staff's first appearance. The staff had been the instrument God had used to bring down Egypt. It was the staff of God, remember? It was the staff here that struck the Nile. Is the, stra- the staff that demonstrated God's power. It was the staff that brought God's judgment on Egypt. And if anybody at this place deserves to be struck by that staff of judgment, who is it? It's the Israelites, it's us. But the rod of God's judgment strikes the rock instead of the sinners and the sinners are saved by the water that flows. And the Apostle Paul reflects back on this moment and says the rock was Christ. Jesus Christ is the rock struck by the rod of God's judgment and all who trust in Him are saved. God is faithful to us, the failures. And very briefly, God is faithful. God is faithful when we suffer. God is faithful when we face enemies. The last half of chapter 17, we've shifted from grumbling inside the camp to enemies outside the camp. And God proves himself faithful. I'll just read a few verses here. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand, staff of God that just saved them by striking the rock. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun... And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You see, Moses, all throughout these things, is a representative of God to the people and of a people before God. He is a mediator. He's the go-between. And here, he's in a position of prayer. That's what these uplifted hands are. In Psalm 28, uh, the cry for help is likened to lifting our hands to the Lord. And as Mo, and Moses cries for help for God to intervene for God to bring victory but Moses fails not because of his sin but because of his weakness he cannot hold up his arms he has to put they just keep sagging on him so he puts them up again and then maybe he doesn't even notice that they're sagging he just notices the battle's kind of going in the wrong direction oh and so what do Aaron and her do? They have him sit down and they hold up his hands and, and, and then this prayer for God to help offered in weakness is answered by our faithful God. Now that picture certainly ought to encourage us to be by one another's sides and to hold one another's hands up in that same way, to help one another be steady in the midst of life through praying together fighting the good fight of faith together. But there's something bigger here. Notice what is happening. The mediator, in his weakness, brings victory to God's people. Does that sound familiar? Now, of course, this mediator needs help, doesn't he? But ultimately, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And He accomplished our final victory with no help. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember what happens there? He goes with His three friends, and what does He want them to do? Watch and wait. Pray. Pray. Watch and wait. What do they do every time? Fall asleep. Fall asleep. In essence. They don't hold up his hands at all. No, what happens is that Jesus prays alone, and Jesus suffers alone, and he is bent down in weakness through that suffering all the way to the point of death alone, and Jesus alone wins the victory on our behalf. So that Colossians 2 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And even now, He alone is our intercessor. His hands never sag as He intercedes for us. The Bible tells us He continually intercedes for us. There are no saints in heaven helping Him pray. God God alone hears His Son alone in heaven. It is the Son's prayers that are sustaining us. It is the Son's intercession that is helping us. He alone is still our mediator. Jesus Christ is the greatest prayer warrior you will ever have. Through Him as mediator, victory comes. And so you see in these chapters, there are these two glaring realities... The failure of God's people. Failure because of sin. Failure because of weakness. The failure of God's people. And the faithfulness of the people's God. And that faithfulness reaches its height in Jesus. While we were yet sinners. Failures. Christ died for us. While we were still weak, failures, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, the bad news is that we are all perennial failures like the children of Israel. But God has sent His Son to save anyone who would call on Him by faith. If you know yourself to be a failure, then when you come to Jesus, you come to the right place because he is faithful to save failures. And friend, if you have called on him, if you're trusting in him, if your sin is forgiven by Jesus, if eternal life has been secured by Jesus, if you know nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus, then you can and must pass the test. Trust the Lord. Trust Him. When life is bitter, when supply runs short, even when death comes knocking at the door days, weeks, months, years, decades before it is ever expected, you can trust Him He will not fail to keep every promise He has made. He who did not spare His Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us all things? He will. The question is, do you believe it? Do you trust Him? Will you walk by faith? Or will you keep walking by sight? Let's bow to pray together. Once we pray, I want us to take a moment to be silent where we are. And then we'll just sing the first verse and the refrain of great is thy faithfulness. So we'll pray a moment of silence and then a song, and be dismissed. Father, how we need your grace to believe what we have seen today. How our hearts rejoice that you are faithful even when we fail. When we fail because of our sinfulness. When we fail because we are weak, you are faithful. Would you encourage our hearts then? Would you help us by the work of the Spirit of God who lives within us to trust you in all of life? That even where we can't see your hand and what it is doing, we will trust your heart which is faithful because you have given up your Son for us. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Convict us clearly and quickly when we grumble against you, when we quarrel with you. We thank you that our hope is in heaven and not here. So why should we tremble when trials draw near? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ
0: and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and in the days to come and forevermore. Amen.